Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. Before we get started, we have some information to share. Let's start with the learning outcomes. As a result of this activity, you will be able to describe the importance of authentic writing and the writing process for school-age kids and teens. You'll be able to define translanguaging and how it relates to bilingual writing, explain the role of spelling and writing, and identify three ways that parents, teachers, and clinicians can support bilingual writers. Now I will share our financial and non-financial disclosures. I have ownership interest in Speechy Side Up and Tassel Learning, and I receive royalties from the Lunos What to Do book series. I'm also a member of ASHA Special Interest Group 12. And Dr. Robin Dancic is a salaried employee of Emerson College and has no non-financial relationships to disclose. Now let's talk about the agenda for today. This episode is just packed with so many great resources. So we're gonna start with introductions and backgrounds, and then we'll talk about translanguaging and how it relates to bilingual writing. Then we'll discuss the between language, culture, and identity the role of spelling in writing, and finally we'll wrap up with a discussion about how parents, teachers, and clinicians can support bilingual writers. Today I'm joined by Dr. Robin Danzak. Dr. Danzak is an Associate Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Emerson College, specializing in language and literacy. Her research focuses on the bilingual writing of adolescents and adults, examining connections among language, culture, and identity. Dr. Danzak lived in Chile for five years where she completed a master's in Spanish linguistics and more recently spent a semester in Italy as a Fulbright scholar. In teaching, she is passionate about community-engaged learning both locally and globally. Outside of work, she spends her time trail running, hiking, and exploring Boston. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hi, Dr. Danzak, thank you so much for coming. Hi, Benita. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. You can call me Robin, by the way. Oh, thank you. Okay, great. So Robin, let's tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your research before we get into our topics and questions. Well, I think you did a great job covering it. I really have focused my research in the past 10 years on bilingual language, especially bilingual writing. And I've primarily worked with teens and adults in this area, Um, most specifically looking at writing across two languages for bilingual students. So for example, writing in English versus Spanish for school-age children. Uh, I also did, as you mentioned, I did some work in Italy where I worked with my colleague Barbara Arfe in Padua, and we did a study of bilingual writing of Italian speakers learning English at school. It's a little different context there. And interesting, I'm kind of moving a little bit outside of languages right now and doing some qualitative research on the adoption experience. Wow, that's really interesting. Can we talk a little bit about that before we get into the topics and questions? What made you, if you don't mind sharing, um, what got you interested in that and what are you finding? Sure, it's really actually very personal. Um, I had a couple colleagues, Michelle Cole and Christina Gunther, and the three of us worked together on some global health projects at the previous university where I was working. And um, we discovered that the three of us all had some experience with adoption in common. So we decided to explore our own experiences using autoethnography, which is a qualitative method that basically allows the researcher to study their own experience. And it's a very reflective experience. We all did some interviews with family members, looked at some old photographs, documents, things like that to kind of create our own stories um, of our experiences. And we put them together into a performance that we performed at the Qualitative Report Conference last January. So 
we ended up with a script basically telling our stories and the process of how we examined and explored and delved into them and compared across our different experiences and themes. And so that's actually getting published in the qualitative report this spring, happily. And we're now extending to invite other people to share their experiences by sharing photos and stories. And we're using the photo voice methodology to basically explore the rich experience of adoption from many different perspectives. So we're in the middle of that right now. We're about to start focus groups with participants. Wow, that's amazing. Well, congratulations that it got published. That's incredible. And if people are interested in joining, is that still possible? And where can they go to kind of reach out to you? Um, they can reach out to my email. At this point, we have we have closed our survey, but we I, I would say it's possible that we open it again in the future if we would like to gather more data. Um, and in general, if people are interested in learning more about what's going on, they're welcome to contact me at my email and I can um, let them know. You know, I did want to kind of make the connection across, across my language background and this current research and that really in both cases, things that I've done with bilingual writing, and as you'll hear later, and things that I'm doing now with adoption are about stories, right? It's really about narrative and all of us constructing our own narrative, sharing our narratives and our stories, and learning about each other through that process. So I think there is, there is a bit of a connection there. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what that is. So let's dive into our topics. Let's start talking about the importance of authentic writing and the writing process for school-age kids and teens, and what that looks like. Sure. So as I just mentioned, we really identify ourselves and share with each other, communicate with, with each other, share about our lives through stories. And part of uh, authentic writing is basically, well, authentic writing is inviting students to write about something that is very relevant and meaningful to them. So it could be a personal story, a personal narrative. It could be a topic they feel strongly about in terms of social justice or the environment or something political or something social that's going on in the world. And if you, if you look at little kids who are just starting to write, like preschoolers, for example, everything they do is very authentic. You know, they write notes to their parents or they make little um, drawings and they write something on there. They'll write a sign. Like I have kind of a little, I've been gathering a collection of this kind of naturalistic, authentic writing uh, of little kids. And one, one thing that stands out is um, I do, as you mentioned, I do some running and I was at a, a race cheering on, on my husband, who's also a runner. And one of the families in the crowd had a couple of small kids. There was like a three or four year old girl holding up a giant poster she had made that said something like, mom, you can run a half marathon. And it was like really cute. You know, you could tell she had written all the letters by hand and she drew some balloons and a picture, a smiley face. So that was a very, that's an example of a very authentic writing for her, right? She has something that is really meaningful and relevant in her life that she wants to communicate to someone important for her. So the problem is when kids go to school, that meaning and connection sometimes comes out of the writing process, right? You know, it we turn it more into an instructed process where we're working on skills and having kids follow a certain procedure or a model. And those things can be very helpful and are necessary too. But in order to really engage students, to get them motivated about the entire writing process and to care about it, what they're writing about ideally needs to be meaningful and authentic for them. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I love that example that you gave with the little girl who made the sign for her mom. So how can teachers and SLPs help encourage this authentic writing process outside, I guess, of like typical standards that they have to meet or testing that they have to adhere to? Well, I, 
I would suggest that, you know, and, and as SLPs, we all know that it's important to provide an individualized experience for the child that you're working with, right? The student that you're working with, you want to learn about them. You want to know about what makes them tick, what are they excited about, what motivates them. So learning more about the student that you're working with can help you figure out what kind of content to integrate into your treatment. And if you're doing SLP intervention in a school-based setting, you know, I always really emphasize to students that it's so important to connect with the curriculum and the standards and to make things real in terms of what the child is doing in school and in the classroom, right? Um, so if they're working on reading and writing expository text like science or social studies, those kinds of things need to come into your treatment. That doesn't mean that it can't be authentic. So for example, um, if you wanna work on persuasive writing models for your student, think about issues that are going on in the world that kids are interested in, like global warming, climate change, uh, social justice issues, perhaps. If your student comes from an international family, immigration could be a topic to look at. Um, and how are these important for the student so that you can use those topics to create pieces of writing that make sense and connect with them in their world. And younger kids, you're probably more focused on narrative structure. So again, personal narratives. What are some stories, experiences that are important in their life that they can work on narrating for you? Um, a move to a new school, first day of school, uh, an important holiday or celebration in their family, um, the story of when a younger sibling was born, for example, some kind of event that was an important event in their life, someone that writing a descriptive about someone that they admire or a person who's important to them, just bringing in that uh, personal connection. I love that. Yeah, it's interesting. You have to wonder what we are assessing when we're looking at writing activities, right? So are we assessing their ability to write or is it their you know, ability to be interested in the topic that you're asking them to write about? Uh, it's, I'm sure like they're reflected completely differently when it's something that the child's actually interested in writing about, correct? Yeah, and you know, we have to keep in mind that writing is really complex. It's a very complex task and it involves language at many levels. I mean, if you're composing a text, you have to think about globally, what is the structure and organization of that text, right? You know, if it's a narrative, what happens first? What happens next? What is the episodic structure? Um, what about the characters, the setting? So those are all those global kind of macro structural pieces that kids are managing when they're writing. And they need a lot of metacognitive skills to think about the big picture. What is the organization of the text, right? What is it going to look like to my reader? How can I convey the message that I want to convey? But then there's also things like vocabulary, sentence structure, spelling, all of these other, even like mechanics, handwriting. There are so many things that come into play, right? Um, and for example, spelling, which is not mechanics, it's a complex linguistic skill, also plays a big role on how productive kids are in their writing. I've seen this in my own research, how productive kids can be in writing and also the overall quality of their text. So you have to kind of keep in mind the balance between the big picture, the macro structure, and those details, uh, those linguistic features which comprise the microstructure of the text. And pick your battles. You know, maybe one day we're working on the organization. So I'm not going to worry that much about if the sentence is grammatically correct. Maybe another day we're working on sentence structure. Maybe we're working on vocabulary. But ideally, 
And to make it authentic, we're putting all those pieces together so that the student can see a final product that they have planned, organized, written, revised, right? And produced in a way that makes them see that this is a process and when they have this complete product, they can be excited and proud of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have some follow-up questions to that. I like that you said pick your battles because that was kind of what I was alluding to. Um, so, you know, don't work on all the components of writing at once. I'm sure if we were to do a writing assessment, we might find that they have deficits in different areas like the language piece or the mechanics piece. And, you know, we probably tend, if we're doing a writing task, to work on those deficits at once or those goals at once. Is there a hierarchy or do they kind of all like work together? Like do the mechanics come first or um, the spelling? I'm sure there is some type of hierarchy here. Well, I don't know. I mean, my instinct is to say that they're all working together okay. because there can be deficits. For example, there can be strengths and challenges that a child presents in one area more than another, right? And then if that's the case, Maybe you want to focus on that. That being said, what is the ultimate goal, right? Um, what is the big picture? Ukrainitz, um, in her 2015 book, talks about this contextualized skill approach. I use this a lot when um, in the class that I'm teaching, the graduate class on language and literacy disabilities. It's really foundational, the idea of the game and the skills that we need to play the game. So in this case, the game, which is the big picture, is that the child is able to effectively compose a real text for whatever context is necessary for them. Maybe it's for you know, a narrative for first grade. Maybe it's some kind of expository essay for fifth or sixth grade, right? But they need to, or, they are engaged in playing this bigger picture game, which is composing the text. And then in that game, we have all the component skills, right? So that includes those things you mentioned, like vocabulary, spelling, mechanics, also text structure, organization, all of those pieces that I mentioned that make up this complex, um, complex process of writing a text. So, we don't want to focus too much on the skills and lose sight of the game or focus only on the game where they're flailing in the skills and we need to support them by zeroing in on those skills. So again, it's, it's a balance. And I, I do think that, yeah, I, I do think that rather than a hierarchy, it's better to think about strengths and challenges in an individual child. So, more like a balance, right? A scale type of a, a metaphor. What's stronger? Okay, they've got a good solid narrative structure, but the sentences could really use some more complexity. Or, well, these kids are writing okay sentences and they have a great vocabulary, but this text is really disorganized and I'm not following. Maybe they need some transition words. Maybe they need a better, um, way to organize an outline and plan the text before they just start writing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I love that. So you're saying, you know, it should really be more individualized than looking at a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Okay. I That's think so, for sure. And, and of course, depending on the expectations of what, what are the expectations on that student in the classroom at that time. So we always have to look at the standards, the learning standards, the curriculum, what are, what are they expected to do and how can we get them to approach that standard? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's teaching, teaching them strategies for planning the text so that it has a better structure. Maybe it's teaching them more vocabulary. Maybe it's teaching them how to compose com complex sentences and link them together with transition words or all of those things. Right. So just to give you a little story about my background as an assistive technology specialist, I would get a lot of referrals for writing 
uh, from teachers, sometimes SLPs in the middle school level. So thinking about, you know, how long this has been until they finally got a referral um, where they would say, you know, the child's really struggling in writing. Uh, I think that they could finally use a tool for the mechanics piece of the writing. That way they could actually accomplish the writing task. Do you feel like that is a little too late um, for that to be done? And what are your other thoughts about assistive technology to support the bigger picture? I like that idea. I mean, I, Assistive technology is an area I'm not as familiar with, but I do think that it's okay to facilitate the process. So if, for example, if the child is a very poor speller and spelling is what's hindering their ability to compose a text, it's okay to give them an assistive keyboard, right, that recognizes words and how, or a program, almost like Word. I mean, there are programs out there, even like we have autocorrect in, in Microsoft Word, but there are even stronger programs that can be used to help the child type and it'll recognize words and fix them so that spelling doesn't become this huge obstacle. And that might help, for example, a child with dyslexia who has issues at the phoneme grapheme correspondence level, but knows the words, has the vocabulary, can write sentences. Um, and you know, clearly if, if mechanics, if, if, if it's about handwriting versus typing versus, you know, I would say use whatever works to get the child to be able to produce that written text, even if it's just dictating, right? Yeah, yeah, that was another thing we would have um, dictation as well, yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Do you feel like the middle school level is a little too late for that type of referral or do you think that just given all of the different components of writing that that's tend that tends to be when it's recognized? Right, I mean this is a whole other conversation, right? <laughs> what's really going on? What's the real issue for that kid and why are they showing up having these challenges? later on in upper elementary, middle school, they seemed like they were okay before. The demands of language and literacy get more and more complex as students progress through the school years, right? Mm -hmm. So a child with some kind of underlying language impairment, oral language impairment might be doing okay, but then when they get to like fifth grade and they're dealing with much more complex text and more specialized language of the disciplines, they might start flailing. So, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the fourth grade slump. It's a common thing that kids in upper elementary all of a sudden are facing bigger challenges than we had thought that they were. Um, and maybe we missed them. Maybe these kids had services in pre-K. And I mean, there is this idea of illusory recovery. You've probably heard of this too. But, um, and then they, they show up looking like they have some kind of literacy challenge, reading disability. Um, again, I mean, we could talk theoretically about, well, what is, what's really going on, right? But um, I guess better late than never, but. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, that was, I'm glad that you highlighted that. I haven't heard of the fourth grade slump or the other one that you talked about. I do remember hearing that like around third grade is when the curriculum gets much harder and that's where you start to see these literacy disabilities start to pop up, I guess. Um, but it is like a chicken and the egg, like what is really mm -hmm. happening there? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Fourth grade slump. It's, it's a thing. It, it is a thing. And the other was the illusory illusory recovery of like the kids who had speech language services in like pre-k kindergarten and were exited it was like oh okay they, they have resolved they're okay now and they managed to kind of keep their head above water in the quote unquote learning to read stage of elementary school but when they had to shift into the quote reading to learn stage which is like you said third fourth grade things got to be a little bit more dicey. So then those challenges emerge again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So we didn't talk about this and I know you're at the university level, but is there any like assessment for writing or protocol for writing that SLPs sh should be aware of that might be nice for them to know about that you wanna mention or um, do you wanna go on to the next topic? 
You know, I would, I would recommend just using writing samples. I, there are things like test of narrative language that has, I believe it has a writing piece to it. Um, and there are other standard quote standardized assessments, but going back to authentic writing, I feel like naturalistic writing is the best thing. I mean, look at samples from the classroom. You can have the kid address a prompt or you can ask the teacher for, for samples. And I think for, especially for older kids, upper elementary and beyond, a comprehensive language assessment in general would be helpful to have a writing sample from that student. Um, again, even if it's something you gather from one of their teachers to see how they're using writing, not only orally, but also in written language. And I do wanna add that working on writing can support oral language and vice versa. So keep in mind that it's not one or the other. If, if you are working with a kid on oral language skills, hopefully they can bring some of that into their writing. But also if you're working on writing, where you really get to kind of slow things down and see things and process things more slowly and differently when you're seeing those words on the page, that can also influence the oral language abilities. Those are not separate. Okay. I love that idea of just taking the writing samples. Like you said, it's authentic writing. Now we do have some newer SLPs that listen to this podcast, or maybe somebody who's like just joining the school system. Maybe they were working in a different area of speech language pathology. How would they then assess those writing samples? Uh, do you have any good examples of what they should look at? Well, that goes back to kind of what I was talking about, the macro versus micro um, elements of, of writing. Don't, first of all, I would say beware. Don't let handwriting and spelling influence you. You have to really tease it apart and read for what is the content first, right? Um, I mean, I've seen some writing samples where I look at, a, you know, say a fourth or fifth grade kid that has really messy handwriting and really bad spelling. And actually research shows that kids with poor handwriting get rated more poorly. They get scored more poorly on writing, um, writing tests. But if you can get past that and look at the content and structure first, you know, what is this kid saying? Are they telling a story, first of all, or are they trying to provide information? Keep in mind different text types. Is this a narrative? Is this a descriptive? Is this a persuasive? Is this uh, an informational text? Are they trying to convince me of something? All these different text types, right? So are they meeting the criteria for the text type? If, if it's narrative, you can think of story grammar. Do they have characters, setting, episodes? Um, these episodes might have a problem and a resolution for a younger kid, very little, you know, kindergarten, preschool, first grade, you're just thinking more like sequence of events, right? First, then beginning, middle, end. And also something about characters, thoughts, and feelings would be good to, to have as part of that informal assessment. Um, thinking about um, perspective taking. So that would be for a narrative. And then for an expository, you're looking for more, a different structure, more like topic sentence, supporting ideas, conclusion. That's macrostructure. And then microstructure, then you're looking at those language pieces of vocabulary, morphosyntax. Uh, what clues can you get about the child's language from the types of vocabulary words they're using? from their pronoun usage? Are they making clear references um, between who they're talking about and the pronoun that they're using in a story, for example? Um, how do they use conjunctions, transition words? What about sentence structure? Do they have complete sentences? And don't worry about punctuation at all. Do they have complete sentences? Are they just simple sentences? Do they use any kind of dependent clauses to make more complex sentence? You know, all of those things. Spelling is always kind of a wild card. Mm -hmm. um, but again, spelling is a complex linguistic skill. It can tell you a bit about the child's phonology, but also what they know about orthographic rules, word families, and morphology, verb inflections, 
derivational morphemes. And that relates back to vocabulary too, especially in upper grades. So you kind of have to look at all those pieces and parts. Wow, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. So we're just talking about writing for, you know, uh, I don't know, the English pop English speaking population, right? Now let's look at that for bilingual speakers. What is translanguaging and how does it relate to bilingual writing? Because I'm sure that adds a whole nother component. Of course. Yeah. So this is the fun part. This is, um, you know, if you have a student who speaks more than one language, it's great to be able to assess them in the language, all of the languages that they speak, but it's not always possible. Um, because if they could speak a language you don't speak, you might be multilingual and they happen to speak something you don't speak, right? You might be monolingual and a monolingual English speaker and the child speaks one other language like Mandarin Chinese and you don't know anything about it, right? So um, we have to use our resources. We have to also be aware when you mentioned translanguaging, so translanguaging, which I believe originated from Ophelia Garcia and colleagues. Um, she has written about this a lot. And it's really thinking about the, the languages, say two languages and a bilingual learner being always in a dynamic relationship with one another. That they're not separate entities, but more integrated. So the idea that students can basically always draw upon one or the other to strategically communicate appropriately in a given situation. If they're in a bilingual situation where the other people communicating with them use both of those languages, there can be this idea of, you may have heard of code switching, right? This idea of using one and the other language kind of in a more fluid, connected way. And translanguaging kind of takes code switching to a higher level. It's just different conceptually. It could look similar, but again, the concept is not so much switching back and forth, but basically this idea that both languages are there, present, active, and in this um, dynamic relationship all the time. So for example, um, in a classroom setting or a therapy setting, you can just see what happens. You know, you can tell a kid to write a story and see if they bring their other language into it in, in any way. Or you can, you can purposely invite them to bring their other language into it. You can tell them they're willing, they're able to write in whatever language or both that they want and see where they go with it. Um, it helps, of course, if the clinician is also bilingual and can also talk about it in both languages and see the, the interplay there. Um, you know, it's, you're unlikely to get every other word being in a different language. Keep in mind again that this, this idea of translanguaging is that it's strategic. So I might be writing a story that's primarily in English, but when I get to a part about what my grandmother told me when we were cooking the tamales, I might write what she said in Spanish because I'm having this memory, and this is an example of maybe a student, right? I'm having this memory of making tamales with my abuelita, and she's telling me how to prepare some of this, this delicious dish. So does that make sense? So it's, it's contextual, it's culturally appropriate. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So to me, it seems like code switching is like that the language skill, whereas translanguage is like the cognitive skill, like what's happening at the higher level that's making code switching happen. Is that right or no? Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting interpretation. I, I think from my perspective and from reading literature on this over the last several years, I think, I think it's more the way we are looking at it. But yes, translanguaging does get more to the cognitive side in the fact that we're seeing it more as an integrated and skillful approach to using language 
for a bilingual student. Yeah, it seems like you they're taking, like the experience, the context, and making like the code switching happen. Yeah, and also being able to utilize all languages in their repertoire in a in a useful way. So another example of of this that I've I've read about, for example, is where you have kids working on some kind of a project in a bilingual setting. So maybe they're writing about um, maybe they're writing about immigration policy and um, what's going on um, at the U.S. Mexico border. I don't know. I'm just, again, just making up an example. So these, assuming these are bilingual students and maybe they do some research online in Spanish and in English. Maybe they're Googling for some news reports in Spanish and reading some things from Mexican news outlets. Maybe they're going to create um, a written report about what's happening in English, but they might also do an oral presentation where they use English and Spanish. Does that make sense? So it's, it depends, translanguaging can depend on the context very much. And there have been, there are some really nice research studies that provide examples of students using translanguaging in an academic context to really be able to delve deeply into an issue, to understand what they're doing, to learn, uh, to produce written texts, right? All of these academic skills that they're able to do in a more successful, deeper, richer way because they're able to use both languages. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So would you say that if a student is completing an academic task or, you know, a speech language pathology task that is related to writing and they're able to do the code switching or translanguaging and should the, I guess, teacher, we'll call it SLP or teacher in this case, should they be encouraging them more to be using the translanguaging to complete the writing task? Or does it just depend, um, I guess, on like how they're assessing it? Does that make sense? So I, I'm, I'm sure if it's like a test or something, maybe that's not something that's doable, but if it's more of like a free, I guess like free time to write, um, that's in the case where they would allow them or should be allowing them to do this. I think it depends on, it depends on the activity. It depends on how you're assessing it. What do you really want to know? Um, do you want to know is this a new kid that you just met and you want to know how they use both languages? Maybe you want to try to have them write something in Spanish and write something in English. Um, if this is a kid you've been working with for a while and you know that they're using primarily English in the academic setting in school, but that their family wants them to also keep up their Spanish and you're able to support that, maybe you can encourage some use of Spanish also in um, the work that you're doing with them in, in the clinic or in the clinical setting. Um, again, it really, it, it's really an individual situation, but it could also be a whole class situation, um, depending on your school population, right? I mean, this could be a, you could be at a bilingual school. It could be a dual language setting. It could be, um, that the student you're working with also happens to be an English learner um, and is also attending some kind of support class for learning English as an additional language. So I think maybe that's the whole idea of bringing translanguaging into authentic writing, right? That makes the context so important. Okay, yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. You probably want to know like how or what's the best way. I mean, I know this is it's this is the dilemma with with language intervention, I think, because and I'm always telling my students, I don't think that there's a right answer because it always depends, right? Yeah. It depends on the student. It depends on their strengths and challenges. It depends on the context the demands of the classroom, the grade level, the 
the curriculum, so many things. Yeah. No, no, that's okay. I am a very like black or white type of person, but that's also an answer in and of itself. Um, and I, I think that we know what's probably best from the research, but we have to do it within the parameters, right, of the setting that we're in and like you said, making it individualized. So um, that's, that's great to know, uh, like those examples that you gave, like if you can assess it, if you are bilingual or if they are able to answer in both or you're in a school that uses both languages, then mm -hmm. you can encourage that. You'll probably get a more rounded, um, authentic writing example or sample in this case, but yeah, that's great. You're, that's exactly it. And, and I would like to add too that, you know, research does show that, I mean, looking back at Catherine Conert's work that having like a student with a language impairment who is in a family that is bilingual, taking away one language and saying, let's just focus on English. That's not going to make it better right? That's not going to solve or cure the language impairment. And not just language impairment, disabilities. This could be a kid with autism, a kid with Down syndrome. Focusing only on English will not solve the problem. And using both languages will not make it worse either. So we still have, you know, parents who are worried about, oh my goodness, is it okay for me to speak Portuguese at home? Is it okay if you know, my, uh, my parents are still speaking Arabic to my child. Yes, 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 right? Because we want that child to have a rich language environment and to be able to communicate with their family members. And whatever the issue, whatever the challenge they have, having exposure and using those two languages is not, is not going to inhibit their ability to grow in those languages. Uh, it's not going to make any condition worse Focusing only on one language will also not make it better. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you for clarifying that and bringing that up as well. I think that's like the number one when it comes to anything with bilingual language is to, to keep that in mind. Because if a child has a family that's using more than one language, they should have access to all of those languages in order to have the kinds of social, emotional exchanges and support that they need in, within their family and in their community. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So you talked a little bit about spelling in previous conversations, but uh, I'm curious to hear more about it and its role with writing. So as I mentioned, um, I mean, this comes from my research with the bilingual Italian students with uh, my colleague Barbara. We did find that spelling had played a big role in how much text students were able to produce and also how um, we rated the overall quality of their writing. So spelling, does play a role. And there are other studies that support that too, um, as far as overall quality of writing. The other thing is if kids don't know how to spell a word, sometimes they'll pick an easier word, right? A more accessible word, a more familiar word, a word that they do know. And then that will reduce the overall quality of their text because they'll be using more simple words that they know how to spell. So spelling can be an inhibitor. Um, and I did already suggest that spelling is more complex than, than we might think. It's also more regular than we think it is in English. Um, there are specific rules that kids can learn. And I think as far as teaching spelling, um, using patterns, orthographic patterns, like word families, like O-A-T, E-I-T, I-G-H-T, um, I-T-E, I-M-E, right? What are all the families, what are, what, are, what are a whole bunch of words that have that rhyme, right? You can think of a pattern. So that's called a word family. So working with word families is one good way. Another is um, 
identifying roots and morphemes. This is called word analysis. And this is especially helpful for older kids who are working with uh, derived words. So, um, you know, you might have a root like um, pop, which means people. And you know pop means people, and there are words like populous, population, unpopular, right? And they have all of those um, other derived morphemes on them. So you're starting with a root and you're building out. And so kids recognize, if kids are able to recognize roots and der derivational morphemes, they can, that can also help them learn meanings of words and how to infer a meaning of an unknown word, but also how to spell words. That's why, I mean, think about it. When you, if you've ever watched a spelling bee or a movie about a spelling bee, the kid will sometimes ask, what is the etymology of the word? Where does it come from? Is it Greek? Is it Latin? Is it a French word, right? And, and that, that can help them figure out what's the root. Think about the SAT words. A lot of those words come from Latin and Greek. So, um, so yeah, it, that is, I think that is something that becomes very important, especially again in upper elementary and beyond. That's really interesting. So in terms of treatment, I wrote down some of the things that you had mentioned. I want to make sure I didn't forget anything. I want to summarize it. So in terms of treatment, using word families and helping them identify root and morphemes, um, or what is called like word analysis. Is there anything else? And for younger kids too, I mean, those morphemes are thing, might be inflectional. What the ED past tense morpheme can sound different depending on the word, right? Um, if I say, um, we named our puppy Pippa, true story, we have a puppy named Pippa. Um, named sounds like duh. But if I say, I baked a batch of cookies, sadly, not a true story. Baked, the ED sounds like t. Right? So if kids are using a purely phonological strategy to spell named and baked, they're going to spell those endings differently. They need to learn that it's not just duh and t. It's ed, which is what we do to make a verb past tense. And so recognizing that inflectional morphine can help their spelling and also helps with morphosyntax which is something you might be working on as an oral language goal for a kid with language impairment. Um, so ED, ING, third person S, those are inflectional morphemes that you can teach as a, as a morpheme, as a unit that you put on a word. But then once kids get into second grade, they're really doing prefixes and suffixes too. So things like un, re, this like what does that mean when you put that on a word so you can do friend friendly unfriendly friendliness right so yeah does that make sense I, I know we're talking a little more about morphology here but that more for English spelling morphology is is really important it's not just sound to letter because when you think about it in English um, we don't have a very transparent orthography mm -hmm. our sounds and letters don't map one-on-one -on -one, and they're not always reliable. I mean, we have K-N-I-G-H-T for night. Right. <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense at all. So, um, but it's not the only word that has that pattern. Luckily, we have a whole family of I-G-H-T words. So we can teach that pattern. Yeah. And we have another family of K-N words, like knife, right? So... Yeah, that's so fascinating. What about the synonyms? Like, did you, have you done any research with that? Or what does the research say in terms of like spelling and how that plays a part, I guess, for bilingual speakers, I would. I would. Uh, that's an interesting question, right? You mean like words that sound the same or? Like write, R-I-T-E um, or R-I-G-H-T or W-R-I-T-E. Right, right. <laughs> Are those <laughs> called homonyms or? Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, this is my uh, mommy brain <laughs> playing a role today. Yeah, I think, um, 
Well, in that case, it's more about the meaning of the word. Recognizing, well, so what are we really writing here? Are we writing W-R-I-T, writing? <laughs> are we R-I-G-H-T, writing a wrong? Um, so this is how we, this is a good example of how language is complex because we have to activate the lexical side of that word too. It's, again, now we have the phonology, we have the, morph we have the orthography, the phonology, but there's always the meaning connected to it. And so yes, for an lear English learner, if they don't know what it means, I don't know, that's pointless to teach those three forms because without meaning, it doesn't have any kind of um, relevance. I mean, we might say, okay, so this is how we write W-R-I-T-E, which means we're writing a letter or we're writing a sentence. Okay, good. But do they also need to know R-I-G-H-T at that moment? I don't know. Only if they know the meaning and if it makes sense to them. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about how parents, teachers, and clinicians can better support bilingual writers. You've given some great examples so far. Is there other examples that you want to share on how they can support them? Um, yeah, I, I feel like we've talked about a lot of ideas. I, I do think that encouraging students to write regularly is important because, you know, I've been in classrooms where I feel like there's not enough time is given to writing at times, you know, their teachers have so much on their plates and there's so many things they have to cover in a day. So if you can get your kid, your student, your client to keep a journal or, um, you know, at the end of every day, write three things that they liked about that day or in the beginning every morning, write three things you wanna do that day. Anything you can do just to get them to write on a regular basis. Um, because it's almost like exercise, you know, it's a muscle. <laughs> like you want to have to, to work it regularly to keep up the practice. So whatever you can do, if it's texting, if it's chatting, if it's, writing a, a blog or doing something technology is a great motivator so a lot of times kids are happy to read or write when they have some kind of a cool tool to use i'm sure you've seen this in your experience with aac devices um, comics i think are also great graphic novels for to get kids into reading writing kids like comics they like, like pictures they like funny stuff so I don't know. I mean, I, I say get them engaged with whatever, and then you can move on from there. So that's kind of the key. And again, that's where that authentic piece comes in. And if you can figure out some kind of authentic, meaningful writing project where they could actually experience the whole process. I, I find from my own research, you know, I, I have found for kids that's very, very valuable knowing that they have done some research on a topic, they've maybe written an outline or a graphic organizer to plan a text, they've written a text, they've revised it, maybe they've done a peer review, you know, they've gone through this lengthy, sometimes arduous process and created some kind of nice final product and then shared that with someone for real, you know, not just for a grade, but for some kind of real audience. So we wrote the letter, for example, you know, we, we wrote the letter because we're really um, passionate about climate change. So we did the research, we wrote the persuasive letter, and now we're sending it to our congressperson or senator to ask them to vote on X policy related to um, some kind of environmental policy on the table, for example. So, yeah, I just wanna go back to the authentic thing and making it relevant and meaningful. And within that framework, remembering that structure, remembering that it's not just the word, the sentence, the spelling, the mechanics, but it's also the big picture of the text. So, macro, micro. Absolutely. 
thank you for sharing the different types of things that they can use to write about. Um, I've also looked at the research from Dr. Erickson in Copenhagen out of the um, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And are you familiar with their research? I'm not. Okay, it's, it's really geared towards teaching students with significant disabilities to read and write. But, um, you know, one of the things that they talked about was providing access not only to the variety of um, mediums, but like a variety of writing materials as well. So maybe like they don't really prefer to type when they write. Maybe they like using, uh, you know, maybe using crayons or maybe like painting their letters or using like the magnetic letters or something. So just keeping that in mind to use like a, a variety of writing materials as well. Yes, markers. You know those gel pens? Oh, I yeah. love them. All different colors, Sharpie markers. I mean, Oh yeah. And get, get a beautiful notebook or journal or even, you know, kids can write on a whiteboard or yeah, I totally agree. Just make it fun, make it engaging. And that's, that's the start. Yeah. I love that. I forgot about those sparkly gel pens. I loved writing with those when I was younger. Oh my gosh. I love looking at pens whenever I go to like Target or <laughs> any kind of gift store. I just bought some pens from Japan there. They came in like a little pack, you know, they're small and like, I don't know. They're, they're pretty cool. They're, they're different colors. So yeah, I That's think awesome. those things are attractive to kids too. And you could do stickers and stamp, you know, you could have them draw. I don't know. There's all kinds of. I like the stamps idea too. And there's also with iPads, uh, I actually pretty much write everything now on my iPad under the app called Good Notes. Mm. And, you know, because the iPad now has like the pencil that goes with it. But I love doing that too. So that might be another option for people if, you know, the students have access to iPads. I love it. I'm using my iPad pencil too. I use Notability, which is another. Okay. You know, yeah. Another probably similar. But probably similar and definitely would be fun um, for those kids. Yeah. So, yeah. We think about writing sometimes, you know, sitting there with a pen or a pencil and paper, but it could be, could be so much more. Right. Um, so Another thing that they suggested was like having the students read aloud what they've written and um, if they have a significant disability and maybe they're not able, they wrote something, but it's not like comprehensible when they're sharing what they read, you would rewrite it for them so that they can see the correct form. And then talking about like publishing the writing, do you, is that something that you encourage as well, just to encourage students to write more and more? Yes, that's part of the process, right? So that's part of that, that whole process. And publishing could be anything. It could be... Um, like sending the letter, like you said, to a Exactly, conference. sending the letter to someone. It could be putting it on your blog. It could be uh, emailing it to the principal of your school. This is an issue that you're concerned about. You know, it, whatever it is, getting it to someone who is going to be an audience for that. I mean, we, one, one of my um, research projects that I really loved um, and, and seems to get a lot of readership is, is Graphic Journeys, where I worked with a middle school class of English learners, middle school, and they wrote the narratives of their family's immigration stories, and then they put them into comics. We used Comic Life software, and our final product was a compilation of all these stories printed in color in an actual book. So part of that project was, well, that project was centered in a big unit that we did using graphic novels and also learning about immigration and the history of immigration in the U.S. and different immigration issues and policies. So we, they did a lot of other things as part of that, but that final product, which was this beautiful compilation of all of their graphic stories of their own family's immigration stories. They had collected photos from their, their families. Um, they got pictures from online. They used the software. It was really cool. And we had an event where parents came and um, 
you know, learned about the kids showed diff we called it the immigration museum. And so the kids had different like stations where they were showing different things that they had learned about. And we had the books for the parents to see. And so it was a really nice culminating event and that can't always happen, you know, but, um, but when you talk about publication, having some kind of satisfying, you know, yes, I did this, someone real is reading it and um, there's something to celebrate there. Yes, I love that. What was the program that you guys used to make the comics? We used Comic Life software. Um, there are some free comic generators online too. Um, one thing I learned with that was because we wanted the kids to work on writing. So before we let them use that software, we made them write those stories like on Word. They had to actually type that. <laughs> they had to write the narrative and revise it before we let them make the comic. Okay. Because the other thing, you know, there is a little like beware when you're going to give a kid a cool tool. They they might get distracted. So yeah, <laughs> if you want them to, to actually focus on something else first, you know, some part of the process, that's where you might have the hierarchy, you know, okay, we're going to work on actually composing this first, but next we get to put it into this cool tool. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Using pictures is great too. Like doing digital stories or captioning pictures. You know, if you're at a lower level, if you're just doing sentences or even paragraphs, you can have kids caption photos. Yeah. Great idea. I love that. Um, last thing I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on like shared writing or predictable chart writing in maybe like those younger grades? Good. Very good. You mean um, having like a writer's workshop type of thing or? Yeah, I guess so. In this case, it's described as like using those, um, what are those, like chart paper and having that in the front of the classroom. And then, um, you know, the whole class would kind of write a story together and fill in the blanks together. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And there are so many other, there are so many good tools, um, different kinds of graphic organizers you could use too. Um, but just make sure that it matches what you want the kid to do. Because like we talked about, there are so many different genres. So is it a story? Okay, that's one thing. But you know, as you get into older grades, older kids, maybe it's not a story anymore. You know, maybe you're doing um, a persuasive text, um, descriptive text, Right, so more expository genre. So there are also graphic organizers for that. So just kind of make sure you're, you pick the right one. Um, Harris and Graham have a bunch in a program they call um, Self-Regulated Strategy Development. They have a really nice book, but they also, I believe there's a website on Self-Regulated Strategy Development. And they've done a lot of research with kids with disabilities and it has been shown to be effective. It's basically tools to build kids metalinguistic, metacognitive awareness when they're writing. So lots of focus on macro structure, on planning and organizing text, and they have little um, acronyms for all different kinds of strategies um, and matching graphic organizers and things that you can use. So those are great. That's awesome. Thank you for mentioning graphic organizers. Yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> component of being able to write, right? Mm -hmm. uh, being able to organize it metacognitively. Wow, this has been so fascinating. And, you know, it's an area that speech language pathologists treat, but I definitely think that it, um, we could all use some brushing up on the writing area, but it plays a big role in language development. And um, like you said, it can improve oral language development. So, you know, they're important, it's important to work on as well. So I'm so appreciative uh, that you came on today and shared about your research, but if people are looking to learn more or to connect with you, where can they find you? They can find me at Emerson College. Uh, my email is robin underscore danzac at emerson.edu. I'm here in Boston and I'd be happy to hear from you. Unlike you, I don't have a podcast or a blog or anything. I had a blog when I was in Italy 
it was really fun and I really enjoyed it. Um, I called it culture chameleon. It's out there. I'm like blogger, I think. Um, and I actually really loved it, but getting back into like real life, it's hard to find time for that stuff. Right. Oh yeah. That's what I'm finding now with like, baby. <laughs> it's like, what am I getting? What's a priority now? What am I going to keep up with? Cause we were putting out the podcast every single week and now I'm like, maybe we're going to scale that back a little bit. So I get it. Um, Robin, is it R I B I N or R I B Y N? R O B I N. R O B I N. Like the bird. Yeah. Perfect. Well, that's a good way to remember it. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want the listeners to know before we go? No, thank you, Vanita. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great talking with you. It sure has. Until next time. Take care. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create an account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this pod course.